0: This is Father Gregory Pine,
1: and this is Father Patrick Briscoe,
0: and welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, So we look forward very much to guest planning episodes because we can broaden the conversation and draw on the insights of those who aren't ordinary contributors. And this episode, we're very delighted to be joined by Professor John Keown. So thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So many, many folks will know you from your publications on issues pertaining to physician assisted suicide and euthanasia, or may have heard lectures through the Thomistic Institute and elsewhere. For those who don't know you, would you just say a a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, what you do?
2: Uh, Yes. Well, I'm uh, English as my accent betrays. I was born in Manchester, England, and uh, I'm a lawyer. I graduated in law from Cambridge and then returned to Cambridge as as a law fellow and taught medical law there before being lured to Georgetown, where I now hold the uh, Rose F. Kennedy Chair in Christian Ethics in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. Right now, I'm a visiting fellow back in the UK at the very distinguished College of All Souls, Oxford.
0: Excellent, okay, so we're spanning three time zones. I'm in Switzerland, Father Patrick is in Washington DC, you're in the UK, Just, uh, it's just international. Um, <laughs> Um, So insofar as you're you're an expert, uh, you know, the world over in this particular issue, let's just get right into it. Uh, So sometimes we say euthanasia. Sometimes we say physician assisted suicide. Is there a difference? Is it is it salient? What exactly are we talking about here?
2: Well, the the problem with the debate is that the definitions are all over the place. People use uh, different words to mean different things. So I think everybody needs to be clear about what we're talking about and essentially. When we talk about euthanasia, what we're talking about is the intentional killing of a patient, uh, typically by a doctor, because it's thought death will benefit the patient. Uh, A short label would be mercy killing. It used to be regularly called mercy killing. So that's what euthanasia is, a lethal injection, typically, administered by a doctor because it's thought death will benefit the patient. Physician-assisted suicide is where the patient kills themselves with the help of the physician. So typically the physician prescribes a lethal drug for the patient to take. And just as a footnote to this important introductory point about definitions, there is this very slippery, vague phrase that is now unfortunately very prominent in the debate, so-called assisted dying. It's a phrase that's been deliberately manufactured by advocates of either euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide uh, as, as a euphemism uh, to make it all sound, well, it's just like helping somebody to die naturally. Well, of course, it isn't. Uh, giving someone a lethal injection or giving them a lethal prescription is not a natural death. It's an unnatural death. So I think uh, we need to be very clear about our de- definitions, because otherwise they will confuse our thinking.
1: I mean, right out of the gate, when you when you talk to people about this issue, it seems that a lot of the, a lot of the intention behind why people would advocate for assisted suicide comes from another one of those euphemisms, right? That the, has the, already been said, mercy killing, um, or or a, a perhaps even more dangerous one is death with dignity. Can you talk a little bit about how how a, how a Christian approach to this, about why why if we're why if if we're against physician assisted suicide, we're not, we're not condemning people to to merely suffering, right? The goal of a lot of these a lot of these um, activists is is to, in fact, help people to avoid pain, right, to avoid suffering. That's, that's the the prism that a lot of these conversations are, are funneled through. So so I wanted to mention that at the outset that we, un- we understand that that's what that's what people who are for assisted suicide are often thinking. Um. so how is it that someone who is against assisted suicide can offer um, can, can offer an, an engagement with that question and say, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm against physician assisted suicide, if, I, if I'm against euthanasia, how is it that I'm not just condemning someone to suffering?
2: Well, I, I would try and make common cause in a sense. Uh, a mm. lot of very decent people are genuinely concerned that many people are dying in unnecessary pain. And I think they're absolutely right. It's a fact, even in developed western societies like the US and the UK, many people are dying um, uh, in pain Uh, and and really this is uh, an indictment of our failure as societies to take sufficient care of people at the end of life. Too often they're abandoned, too often they're not given access to appropriate drugs and this is a, a terrible tragedy because palliative care is not rocket science. It could and should be made available to everybody who could benefit from it. And speaking here in the UK, which is a world leader in palliative care, there are still tens of thousands of people a year who die in unnecessary pain. So I would say, yes, we too are concerned about the prevention of suffering. We too want to do more. So we agree on the end. Where we disagree is the means. And we don't think that intentionally killing people is a moral means of alleviating suffering. Uh, So I think that's where we need to uh, make a clear distinction that morality isn't just about ends, it's about means as well. There are some ways of trying to promote good ends that are just bad in themselves and assisted suicide is one of those. Intentionally killing somebody is basically to make a judgment that their life is no longer worth living, that they're better off dead. And that goes against one of the key principles of the Judeo-Christian tradition, one of the key principles of Western civilization, one of the key foundations of Anglo-American law, which is it's always wrong intentionally to kill an innocent person. That's why this debate is so important, because we risk losing sight of that fundamental moral and legal principle. Mm.
0: Okay, so with that, you're you're already gesturing towards a question uh, that I had, you know, kind of formulated in anticipation of the con- like of this particular con- excuse me conversation. Um, I think with a lot of contemporary controversial issues, uh, like social conservatives find themselves in an awkward situation because when they argue the point, whether it be about same sex attraction or transgenderism or euthanasia or whatever else, um, those who are affected more existentially or personally by it. Uh, often feel that a judgment is coming from without like a kind of alien claim. It's like, what hath that to do with me? Um, and so conservatives are often cast as kind of like cranky and outdated or outmoded and that, that they don't actually suffer the thing or they're not actually implicated in the thing. And as a result of which, it's like, who cares what you say? Um, so, so people find themselves in an awkward situation where they don't want to be judgmental or bigoted or whatever. Um, and so they don't know then how to enter into the fray. I've heard you speak once along the lines of like slippery slope arguments, drawing comparisons to the trajectory of euthanasia um, in, in the, the Netherlands. Uh, but like what are ways in which like all persons are, are existentially or personally concerned by this particular issue? How is it kind of coming home to roost or how is it being made known to us uh, more urgently?
2: Well, uh, again, I think uh, we need to, as it were, remind people that we live in communities, and it's not just about our individual choices and what we happen to want. Uh, I think we need to reassure people that, you know, society should not abandon anybody, should care for those who are vulnerable, should care for those who are suffering. Um, And we can do that. You know, we've never been better able to do that. This is one of the ironies about this modern debate uh, that through our great palliative care specialists, we're able to alleviate, Uh, virtually all suffering. Um, So it's very strange that this argument, this debate is taking place in the modern Mm -hmm. era. Um, I think we also need to remind people that not only is euthanasia the wrong answer, but by going down that road, we undermine the key principle of our fundamental equality. Euthanasia, as I said earlier, is, is based on a judgment that certain people are better off dead And that's something that no civilized society should ever accept. I think a a very important House of Lords committee here expressed it very nicely when in 1994, having considered all the arguments for legalization, unanimously said we shouldn't change the law, we shouldn't allow euthanasia or assisted suicide, because the prohibition on intentional killing, they said, is the cornerstone of law and of social relationships that protects each one of us impartially, embodying the belief that we are all equal. So I think one way to reach out to people who are tempted to support physician-assisted suicide is first to say, well, it's not really necessary. You know, we can, there are other positive ways of alleviating suffering. And secondly, do you want to live in a society which has two classes of people? Those who we think have lives that are worth living, and those that we think, are leading lives that are not worth living, and I think many people, when they reflect, will say actually I don't want to go down that road. Not only because it's wrong in principle, but also, where does it end? The judgment that someone's life is not worth living is fundamentally arbitrary. Today it might be, well, those who are terminally ill and suffering, and tomorrow it might be, well, the chronically ill and the suffering, and the day after, the mentally ill who are suffering, and then the old and the lonely who are suffering, and we see in a country like the Netherlands, this is precisely the trajectory one goes down. The initial focus is on people dying agonizing deaths, and before you know it, Uh, It's extended and extended and extended so that uh, recently, a few years ago, the Dutch government said, you know, why don't we extend the law to old people who are tired of life, whose suffering is not from any physical illness. It's from their very existence. Their suffering is existential. I'm suffering because I exist and I'm old and I'm lonely. So do people really want to live in that kind of a society? I don't think many people do.
1: Right I'm glad you I'm glad you uh, got to this this question about, uh, about meaning you know by bringing up the the existential question because one of the things that we're facing of course right now and it was exasperated exacerbated, exacerbated by the covid-19 pandemic is the lo- the loneliness epidemic among young people so so when when we see when we see various permissions various laws going forward that allow or expand uh, or uh, permit or otherwise authorize euthanasia. One of my concerns is from people that are struggling um, with me- with mental illness, particularly loneliness or depression. Um, are there are there reasonable means being put into place as you're seeing, you know, some of these laws advanced that actually protect um, someone, you know, f- from simply killing themselves. You know, we we started out, as you said, by talking about um, grave cases about palliative care. But, but one of my one of my deep concerns is that that um, people will receive a kind of medical diagnosis. Uh, it's extremely common for cancer patients, right, to suffer from various forms of depression um, while they while they fight their disease. Um, so do you think do you think we're seeing in these laws adequate provisions uh, to to help people who are who are struggling with mental health, or or are they, or do these laws risk um, these laws risk a severe consequences for, for people who might, who might be really just struggling with depression.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think these laws are totally inadequate for two reasons. One, even those laws that, like in the United States, so you have now, what, 10 states in the District of Columbia, allow physician-assisted suicide for the terminally ill. There's no requirement that patients be referred for psychological evaluation. In fact, very, very few are, even though we know that many people with suicidal ideation are suffering from depression and once helped no longer want to end their lives. So, so that's a grave failing in, uh, not the only grave failing, but one of the grave failings in, in those kinds of laws. But also you have laws such as those in the Netherlands that, that permit people who are uh, mentally ill to access physician assisted suicide they don 't have to be physically ill um, and what does this say about our attitude towards people with with mental illness? Uh, and it seems to me that we 're effectively abandoning them uh, and and we know that again, even in our rich developed societies like the Netherlands, um, there, is, uh, there is inadequate care and provision for people with with mental illness. So I think uh, one opens a whole can of worms when one goes down the road of even starting with terminal illness because the next step is, well, why not the mentally ill? They're suffering. And your northern neighbour in Canada, you know, was about to extend its law to the mentally ill this year. It's been postponed for one year. Um, So again, evidence of this, uh, the logic of legalisation, as I call it. If me, why not them? You know, And, And so I think people who, you know, out of a sense of compassion, quite understandably, are attracted to the kind of Oregon-style laws for the terminally ill, physically terminally ill, I think we can encourage them to just step back and say, well, look, what's the principle behind this kind of law? And basically, there are are two main principles behind this push for legalizing physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. It's respect for autonomy, which we hear about no end, it's almost what some people call, you know, autonomania. And secondly, compassion or beneficence, the relief of suffering. If those are the two principles in favor of all laws like Oregon's and the other US states that have those kinds of laws, you can't stop at the terminally ill, because there will be people who are chronically ill who also want physician-assisted. So what about their autonomy? And they're suffering too. So there's a logic of legalization built into these laws. It's not just some kind of airy-fairy empirical prediction. Well, oh, we'll all go to hell in a handcart. It's built into the very moral case for an Oregon-style law. Once you buy into that, then you forfeit any principal objection to sliding down the slope towards the kind of Dutch or Canadian-style law. It's, it's only going to be a matter of time. And so I think one way of, of trying to dissuade people from supporting physician-assisted suicide is to, as it were, help them think through the moral case that they're supporting. And once they see the implications of what they're buying into, I think many people will stand back and say, well, actually, yes, I, di- I didn't realize that that's the package I'd be buying. You know, I see where it's going to go. I see where it's- I'm committing myself to going. And then not just for the mentally ill, Uh, not just for the old and lonely, but for those who are incapable of making any choice. Um, So although they don't have any autonomy, they can still be regarded as suffering. So it's no surprise that in the Netherlands in 1984, the Dutch Supreme Court declared voluntary euthanasia lawful for suffering patients. And then only 12 years later, the Dutch courts extended that to babies, infants who were suffering. Because they said, well, there's no autonomy in play here. The baby can't make a request. But we can still argue that we're doing the baby a favor by killing him or her to end his or her suffering. So beneficence is in play. uh, And that's why there is this logic of legalization that I think we need to to bring out. And once the penny drops, I think many people will think twice.
0: Okay, so thinking in terms of those two principles, which you outlined namely autonomy and beneficence, I want to turn then to uh, goals or the end game. Do you have a clear sense of what the end game is? When I read some of these exchanges, I'm a bit confused, because sometimes to me, it sounds almost nihilistic. Like, yes, it's symptomatic of the breakdown of the family that old sick people feel exposed and unloved. And so they might choose to take their life, but it also exacerbates the breakdown of the family. But it doesn't seem like there's a positive project. It just seems like a kind of getting rid of without, uh, you know, kind of giving substance to something else in its place. And and then other times, it sounds almost eugenic, like when you describe it along the lines of mental illness, or when you describe it along the lines of those who have whatever so um, but but I, I, I just don't have a keen sense of is there a coherent logic? Is there a type of end towards which it's advancing? Can you shed some light on that?
2: Well, if you follow through the logic, it really does advance across a whole swathe of people with physical or mental or emotional or social problems. Uh, there's no uh, logical barrier to allowing these people to end their lives. Um, so, uh, if people are suffering from you know, social uh, distress, from homelessness or poverty, why not extend the benefit of a hasten death to them why isn't their suffering just as valid a ground for uh, a lethal injection or prescription as someone who has physical or, or mental suffering um, so i think uh, that's that's where we're going and and we can see from canada they're going uh, very very quickly uh, even more quickly than the dutch the dutch were pretty speedy down the slope but they're being overtaken by the Canadians, I think, who who only legalized it in 2016. Um, So I I think once one abandons the fundamental principle of uh, human equality, uh, innate human dignity, the wrongness of intentional killing, then it's open season, really. Uh, Any limits a society imposes are purely arbitrary and likely to be very temporary. So I think that's, that's the way we're going, and whether it's a, you know, a deliberate design behind cer- certain people pushing this agenda or not, that's the logic of, of legalization. What's interesting is uh, some years ago, you know, when you look back at the history of this debate, because it's, it's not a new debate, it's been going for, for over 100 years. Um, interestingly, it started out, you mentioned eugenics. There was a very strong eugenic uh, influence on certainly the early movement for uh, euthanasia. So um, uh, my former law professor at Cambridge, Professor Glamour Williams, wrote one of the first books on medical law and ethics. It was published in the States in 1957 and in Britain the following year. And he was an avowed eugenicist, you know. Um, so he was totally in favor of uh, killing disabled babies. He said, uh, I think one of his memorable lines was, um, I think the mother who kills her disabled children is just like the bitch that kills kills its misshapen puppies. You know, we wouldn't criticize the dog for doing that, so why should we criticize the mother for doing that? So, so certainly there has been this uh, thread of eugenic thought, uh, certainly at certain moments of the uh, movement towards the legalization of, of euthanasia. And I think we'd be naive to assume there aren't elements of that in, in the current debate as well. So the you know the, the dispatch of uh, babies with spina bifida in, in the Netherlands, for example, one could point to that and say, there's a clear judgment that children with these disabilities are regarded as better off dead. And if with those disabilities, why not with other disabilities? So I think the disability community has a very important voice in this debate mm-hmm. because disability groups, uh, in, in the States uh, and, uh, and in England, have been at the forefront of opposition to legalization because they see where it goes. They, they see what's underneath the rather benign and benevolent, uh, as it were, carapace of the argument. They see that underneath, it's really about the judgment that certain people have lives that aren't worth living. And I think that's the key thing that people need to grasp. It's not fundamentally about autonomy. Because even advocates for laws like Oregon are not saying, yes, everyone has a right to assisted suicide. Like, no, only if you meet this condition or that condition. So that reflects the fact it's fundamentally about a judgment that society makes that some members of its uh, community really would be better off dead, really don't have worthwhile lives. And that is what the disability community is flagging up the real danger of society fracturing into these competing groups, those who regard themselves as having lives worth living, and looking down on those who they think don't really have lives that are worth living, and encouraging and making available to them a way of killing themselves.
1: I mean, it's amazing to me, Professor, as you've kind of unraveled this, uh, you know, we we started out with the principle of autonomy. And what we found is actually someone else making a decision. I mean, this is, this is one of my very grave concerns about a lot of this is that uh, healthcare, healthcare has, you know, however many resources it has, ultimately that number is going to be limited and someone is going to be making a judgment about who receives what kind of care. I mean, as, you, as you've said, we can easily do far better with palliative care. But, you know, in the instances of an organ transplant, for example, there's a board that makes a decision on who who can and who can't receive an an organ because of a a limited supply. Okay. Uh, So then with this question, with euthanasia, um, ultimately, it seems that something which begins as someone's own so-called right to end their life, someone's own decision to decide to die with dignity, we've already deconstructed some of these euphemisms, um, will will terminate with uh, actually another group of providers or another, another committee making a decision for that person.
2: Um, yes, that, that's absolutely right. The, see, the laws around the world, they don't just allow people to make an autonomous decision to end their lives. You, they've got to satisfy certain conditions. Those conditions are imposed by the lawmakers or the judges. Uh, so the law is saying, well, in these conditions, we think you should be helped to kill yourself. But that's fundamentally our judgment, that you should be allowed to make that decision. It's not a truly autonomous judgment. Um, and so, so in many cases in the Netherlands, doctors refuse requests for euthanasia. The so doctor makes the ultimate call, not the patient. And behind the doctor stands society, which sets down the legal parameters it decides which kind of citizens should be able to kill themselves or to be killed by their doctor. So it's fundamentally you know, a moral and social judgment that society makes as to who and who should not be allowed to make this decision. So all the emphasis on autonomy is a bit distracting. So
0: maybe just in the last couple minutes that we have, uh, would you say a, a brief word about palliative care? And my concern is this, I suspect some people just think it to be another euphemism. Palliative care is just like fancy, long euthanasia. Uh, what's what's distinct about this type of treatment or what's distinct about this type of accompaniment which actually nourishes people's hope rather than kind of forecloses on their lives in a spirit of despair?
2: Well, I think uh, one of the key distinctions is that uh, with palliative care, we're trying to palliate, alleviate somebody's suffering. And that's a uh, wholly good and worthwhile enterprise at which the modern medical and nursing professions uh, have excelled, really. The problem is availability of it. It's not sufficiently available to people. So as I said earlier, many, many people are dying in unnecessary pain. And when you see your loved one die in unnecessary pain, then it's very easy to fall into support for physician assisted suicide. Um, But many of us have seen loved ones die in pain uh it's not a uh a very um warming or you know uh edifying spectacle uh but the answer to that is not to hasten the death of the sufferer it's to end the suffering As some people say you must kill the pain not kill the patient and that reflects this key moral and legal distinction uh, between intending to alleviate suffering, even if foreseeably it may as a side effect shorten life, and on the other hand, intending to make the patient dead as a means of putting a stop to their suffering. I think people need to really grasp this very important traditional medical, moral, legal distinction between trying to kill the pain, which is fine, and trying to kill the patient, which is wrong.
0: Okay, well, I think uh, with that, we've come to the end of our time. Maybe just by way of ado, uh, would you just say a word about resources uh, that people can follow up with, maybe things you've written or places where they can access your work online?
2: Uh, Yes, well, uh, the the website of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics has my CV uh, with a list of all the publications, and there are many good uh, centers of Catholic bioethics around the world that people might want to access. Here in Oxford is the Anscombe Center, uh, Anscombe Bioethics Center, named after the great Catholic philosopher, Elizabeth Anscombe, who had chairs here and, in Cambridge. Um, and then there's a the National Catholic Bioethics Center in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia. So, so those are two very, very useful resources with, uh, with materials that are very accessible to the the general reader. So I would I would encourage those two uh, uh, centers, uh, their websites, in particular.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time. And thanks, especially for the clarity with which you formulate arguments. It certainly helps us to think through the issues and to be more confident as we testify to human dignity and even dignity in the midst of, of great difficulty and suffering. So thanks.
2: Great. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right, turning then to you, the listener. Thanks as always for listening to God's planning. If you would please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I don't know why I prefaced that by, if you would, it's like a very polite ask, um, like the episode, subscribe on YouTube, your podcast app and leave a five-star review, uh, and insofar as you think that this might help with conversations that you're in the midst of with friends, uh, with family members, with business associates do share it in that spirit. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, you can follow the link in the description or show notes. In those same descriptions and/or show notes, you'll follow links for God's spending retreats, three of which are on offer at present, and for God's merchandise. All right, so know of our prayers for you, please pray for us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's